From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. It's a project unlike anything I've heard before, and it comes from CPR's Haley Sanchez, who covers faith for us. Haley, you're bringing this project to our show today. Tell us about it. It's a change from all the bad news we've had, a chance to grieve and heal. A Colorado faith leader wrote a meditation, and folks from different walks of life help us read it. A grocery worker, a BLM activist, a nurse. That's in our first half hour. Then a dancer with the Aspen Santa Fe Ballet was moving down the timeline and knew he needed to find a second career, one that wasn't so hard on his body. But how do you stay in one of the most expensive places in the country and raise a family? Later, constituents of Lauren Boebert, who are transgender, wonder why the congresswoman is singling them out. Plus, Colorado at the Oscars. Climate change is a global issue with undeniable local impact. I'm Joe Wirtz, editor of CPR's climate team, and we're focused on deeply researched, comprehensive coverage about the environment in and affecting Colorado. You already hear this work on your radio. Now you can also get it in your inbox. Sign up for CPR News Climate Weekly for a digest of fact-based reporting on the impact, solutions, and political aspects of climate change. Sign up at CPR.org slash Climate Weekly. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. There's been layer upon layer of difficult news this past year. And so we've decided to make space in this first half of the show for grief and healing. Given the pandemic, the economic freefall, the daily realities of racism, the mass shootings, and the wildfires and political rifts. Today, we present a unique audio collaboration with Reverend Amanda Henderson. She has dedicated her career to interfaith work and now leads the Institute of Religion, Politics, and Culture at the Iliff School of Theology. Reverend, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. Grateful to be with you. This sonic project, which we'll hear shortly, is based on a poem you wrote. And Coloradans from all walks of life are going to help us read it. But uh, tell us about the inspiration first. Yeah. So on one, just feeling the exactly like you named this year-long layering of grief and pain and exhaustion. And on the night of March 22nd, uh, after the shooting at the Boulder King Supers, yeah. I was watching the news and I actually have a 19 year old daughter who goes to see you Boulder and had been at that very store the day before the shooting. And so I was watching with my daughter and my family. And as the officials came up and the police officers and the bystanders and were speaking in those first press conferences, I was struck by their pain and their anger and their sadness and that that disorientation that I know from being in moments of um, tragedy in that very moment. But I also saw this visceral exhaustion in their faces. And in that moment, watching their exhaustion, it intersected with my own exhaustion and, and I just was overwhelmed by this collective exhaustion of tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy. And 
you know, one, these mass shootings that are just infuriating and heart-wrenching in addition to the year-long pandemic and, as you named, the wildfires and job loss and those who have lost loved ones and feeling all of that. Yeah. I, I remember watching the news come in from our own reporters uh, about the shooting at the King Supers and just being dazed at the thought there had been another layer of trauma to navigate. So I'm curious, what's your best tool as a reverend for dealing with grief? <laughs> yeah, I think that it's one. Um, the first thing is to name it and and being able to clearly state, I am feeling grief and to be able to settle into that in some way rather than denying it. And and I've heard multiple people say, well, I haven't had it as bad as that person. I haven't loved, lost anyone I love. I haven't lost my job. But there's this element of grief that, yes, people are experiencing in very particular ways. But there's also this collective grief that we are experiencing as as communities, as families, as a country globally in this time. So acknowledging that grief is first. The next oh, let me ahead. let me just pause you there because I think it's really lovely to have given people permission to do that. What I have found myself doing during the pandemic is focusing on what I'm grateful for. And I haven't been on a ventilator. I've been employed. I don't drive around in fear of police, as many of my fellow Americans do. And it's been hard for me to get in touch with my grief because I say to myself, but I'm so lucky in so many regards. Yeah, I think that it's both and. And it's okay to both feel grateful. And and that's, I think, a part of, you know, moving in grief. Um, and I'm not saying through grief. I'm saying in grief um, is both being grateful and naming all of the ways that we are okay, as well as naming uh, the pain that other people are feeling and that we are all feeling. And then what was the next point you were going to make? The next point is that remembering. So acknowledging, yes, grief is real. The second is remembering who we are, remembering our stories, remembering that we each come from a long line of people who have found resilience in the midst of suffering. Right. We're here today because people before us made it. Exactly. People carried on. People have struggled, especially when you look to communities who have been marginalized and oppressed and and faced constant um, obstacles to experiencing life fully. So that resilience, remembering our resilience is key. There are seven sections of this poem that we're going to hear after the break, uh, each one written with something specific in mind. And we'll have just a whole host of Coloradans reading from these various sections. Um, in just a few seconds, what, what are you trying to achieve sort of with each chapter? So one, this is built on, inspired by an Anglican prayer bead um, prayer. So using beads that both ground us and move us. And each of the people who we invited to be a part of this are people who have experienced this past year in very particular ways. People who are active with the Black Lives Matter um, movement, people who are teachers, medical 
medical workers, Asian American folks who have experienced a rise in hate crimes, grocery workers who have been those essential workers. So each of the people who are reading are sharing from their own experience as we name this both particular grief and the collective grief. And we will turn things over now to Coloradans from all over the states, different walks of life. They're going to share their struggles, hopes, and help us read Reverend Amanda Henderson's poem, Rhythm of Healing. Deliver us. My name is Henry Fry. Um, I work at the King Supers. It's in the city of Littleton. I basically come home and I just... I'm just exhausted no matter what, even in some cases, if it's been just slower days, it's quite frankly, kind of exhausting every single day. I mean, I found a few ways to cope better with stress, but it's still not exactly something that I would say is fun. After the shooting, it's, I honestly considered that just like calling in for the rest of the week, just because like these, these aren't just some random people. These are people who like, I probably may have talked with sometime. I may have, you know, like, Hell, we may have gone to the same training at the Kroger Training Facility. You know, like, these are people who, like, just like me, they were just going to, you know, complete their shift, get some pay so they could, I don't know, pay their rent or pay their grocery bill, you know. It's not exactly easy. Deliver us from hate and division, violence and suffering. It has been a long, hard year, working on the front lines to keep our communities fed, risking our health and the health of our families, and now feeling the lingering fear that binds us to pain and trauma. Deliver us. This pandemic has brought out some of the best parts in people, but it's also definitely brought out a lot of the worst parts of people. I hope that this doesn't end up you know, tearing the community apart because fear has a way of doing that to people. Open us. My name is Boyang Lee, and I am the Senior Vice President of Academic Affairs at ILF's Global Theology in Denver. I was doing okay, but last May, only a block from my house, I went out to walk late afternoon, and I was uh, chased by a white man in his truck with a torn American flag chasing me in his truck with anti-Chinese slurs. I had to make a quick decision about my safety, so I ran between two homes to somebody's backyard to avoid him. You know, as an Asian American and also, you know, immigrant woman, because, you know, of my look and my accent, you know, I have experienced a lot of um, subtle microaggressions uh, all the time in my entire life in the United States, but nothing like that. So ever since then, I don't feel safe to be outside by myself. Open us. Open us and let us share the vulnerability that we can no longer hide. In our suffering, we are softened. Our hearts and minds are open. Ways of the past no longer serve us. Open our imaginations so we might be receptive to each other so we might hear each other and see each other open us. 
when these things uh, happen and then we are shaken, we tend to uh, hide in our cave and just mind our own business. But uh, I think coming together, working together and building solidarity is the first place of a healing. When we come together, the fear will not be the core of our life. Freelance. This is Pastor Josue Rubio from Edwards, Colorado. I'm a pastor in Vida Nueva Christian Center. We work with the Hispanic community, most of the people who work in the Vail Resort, some of them temporary workers, and also in the construction area. Hispanic people suffering in a different way because they live behind the culture, the families, and they feel insulated. Many people suffering by COVID, parents, relatives pass away in Mexico or Central America or South America. And this create very, very tough and difficult time. Because imagine people who the parents pass away and they cannot go for the funeral. So it's very Difficult time. Fill us. Fill us with resilience and restraint, empathy after a year of struggle, worn out and drained. Fill us back up with the energy of spring sunshine, mountains, and fresh grass. Fill us with the sound of laughter and the flavor of good food. Fill us. Every day we have a new mercy, new opportunity new hope. So I think we have more expectations to be better. And after all of this pandemic runs away, hopefully we can do a better person, better community, better country. Teach us. My name is Jennifer Budden, and I'm a fifth grade teacher at Runyon Elementary School. I'm not going to say it's been easy. (laughs) People say just kind of go with the flow, but it's really hard to go with the flow when you don't know what's going on. And with the kids in my class, I do the exact same thing, talking about how they're feeling when we had to go back to remote and back and forth and wearing masks. Just talking about it, I think, is really helpful. For me, it's the same thing, taking it day by day and making sure that I do talk to people about the way I'm feeling. Um, I've had to see my doctor (laughs) about my anxiety levels, you know, and um, process with friends and family. I think even going outside and, you know, enjoying nature, we're really fortunate in Colorado to have beautiful scenery, walking trails, I think is super important. Teach us new ways in these always changing days. Give us patience and an open mind to learn what we need to learn to thrive, regardless. Teach us to meet each other where we are with kindness and compassion, curiosity and innovation. Teach us. We do have to give each other space. Be patient because not everyone processes things the same way. My big thing in the classroom is kindness. I tell them, you know, kill them with kindness and no one's going to hire you (laughs) if you're not kind. You think you're really smart, but 
kindness is the number one thing and being compassionate to one another because we don't know what everyone's going through. Keep us. Hi, this is Kelly Milliman. I'm a nurse. I work at Children's Hospital Colorado. Keep us connected to one another. With all that divides, bind us together. If we have learned nothing this year, we have learned that we are all connected. What impacts one impacts all. Keep us. It's hard to describe last year. Working in Children's Hospital, we weren't as impacted as the adult hospitals were impacted. But in in a sense, we felt hopeless. People are fatigued. People are tired. I do feel like myself, family members, friends, I feel it. I feel the amount of stress that we are all under and that we have taken on over the last year. But I've also seen resiliency above and beyond expectations. I've seen friends who have not had a job for months, never losing hope, always hanging in there, trying to stay positive and eventually getting that job. I've seen other folks volunteering more, becoming more involved with their own family members, even if it's through Zoom or through Teams. And I think that that's good for the soul. And it's one way to help deal with the uh, increased amount of stress that we are all feeling. I feel like there's light at the end of the tunnel. There's a renewed sense of hope and lightness. I do feel a sense of lightness. And that's exciting. And I haven't been very excited in a long time. Send us. Inyan Judah, the representative of the 41st House District in Aurora, Colorado. For many communities, especially communities of color or BIPOC communities, we have experienced this past year in a different way. And unfortunately, I think we all have a shared kinship around our experience with COVID. That said, I also believe that because of generational trauma that already exists in our healthcare systems, in our education systems, in society in general, the compounded stress of this past year because of COVID um, has really exacerbated an epidemic. I think as lawmakers, we have an obligation to the people of Colorado to absolutely do what we can, whether it's through policy, whether it's simply showing up or listening to community to make sure that their interests are uplifted and that we can be their voice in the Capitol. Send us to do the work of common good. Let us serve one another with generosity and determination. We are all here ready to be the hands and the feet of justice and healing. Send us. This past year has allowed us to refocus 
How can we even reimagine our own lives and how we can continue to carry that and offer that, encourage other people and use this as the silver lining in the opportunity we get to dictate what we want to see for ourselves and for our community. My name is Amy Brown. I am one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter 5280. The past year has been horrible for BLM 5280, which is indicative of how it has been for Black people and our larger community. The past year has forced us to find ways to pivot that we never anticipated or wanted, but had to identify because the alternative was complete isolation and alienation. We've really had to turn back to the question of what is our why? For me, it's my daughter, whose name is Mercy. For the chapter, it is our Black community. Getting back to the foundation of that question, what is our why, is not small, it's not invalid. It's really essential to our functioning as people, as Black people, and as as an organization here to serve Black community. If all we did today was connect with each other and touch base and see someone's face, even if it's through Zoom or hear someone's voice or send a meme that makes somebody laugh or, you know, enrich myself in a moment with my daughter in which we're both able to laugh and connect and love each other. Those things are valid and they matter. And they're, they're really foundational in making sure that our Black lives matter. Bring us. Bring us always closer to the source of life and connection. When times are tough, remind us that we are not alone. When we feel at our end, call us back to our communities who hold us up and get us through. Bring us. Bring us were the final words there. Rhythm of Healing by the Reverend Amanda Henderson. That piece was produced by CPR's Haley Sanchez with audio engineer Patrice Mondragon. If you'd like to read more about this project, how and why Haley put it together, visit CPR.org, where you can also see photos and artwork that accompany it. The story now of a career leap. Joseph A. Watson II danced for more than a decade with the Aspen Santa Fe Ballet, but that's not a career you can have forever. It's too hard on the body. So Watson joined a profession that earlier in his life he'd sometimes been wary of, a profession that's been in the news a lot lately. And Joseph, welcome to the show. Good morning. First off, how does a dancer know it's time to hang up the tights? Like, what, what were the signs in your mind and body? Um, for me, it was uh, 
the belief that once your body kind of stops working like it used to, <laughs> it's time to time to probably move on. Um, I also told myself like if it ever became a job, you know, you never, I never thought that I would be able to dance as a career. You just kind of do it because you love it. And somehow I was blessed enough for it to become a career. And after a while, you know, you get a little older, you get, it gets a little harder to wake up early in the morning and get ready and stuff like that. So it started to become a little bit of a job for me. So I always said, once that happened, then that means that it was time for me to move on to let some younger person who, you know, hasn't had the experience that I've had get in there and know what it's like. So did you start to feel pain? Oh yeah. Well, you always feel pain. That's, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's that's part of the job, you know, when you're pushing your body, you're trying to keep you all, you're constantly pushing your bodies to the limit, you know. So there's always an element of pain, but how fast you recover from that pain gets a little bit harder and longer as you get older. So yeah, for me, that was kind of one a few of the signs that I knew like, all right, I've I've had, you know, I'm 30 something years old. I've had a long career and I've got to, gotten to go and see places and do things that I never thought that I would do and you know, I honestly had an element of I feel satisfied, you know. Hmm. I feel feel like I've done all I needed to do. I've walked the length of that road and it was time to kind of move on to something else. Yeah, so you knew it was time to leave the ballet. I understand it was important for you to stay in the Roaring Fork Valley. Uh, why, why did you want to stay there, briefly? Oh man, I love this place. Um, I'm, a, I'm from Baltimore, so when I moved out here about 10, 11 years ago, I had never seen mountains. You know, I never experienced what it was like to live in nature. I had never gone camping. I had never done any of the things that we, you know, take for granted <laughs> out mm. here. Um, so when I, after living here for 10 years and you know, with the ballet, we were able to travel a lot. So I got to go to New York. I got to go to these big cities. I got to see what it was like to live there. But at the end of the day, after being on tour for a couple months or weeks at a time, you know, at the I always wanted to come back. You know, I was always like, all right, I'm ready to go back. You know, I, I did what I needed to do in the cities. I've seen what I needed to see. But I don't know. I always felt the calling to come back. So me and my wife decided we you know we decided you know what we're gonna do it we're gonna try to make it work and we're gonna try to stay here and then once we said that out loud everything just kind of worked itself out for us to be able to make this place make the Roaring Fork Valley home. Oh, I love when that happens. Kind of, <laughs> you got to put it out there, man. Yeah, the synchronicities <laughs> around intention. So a, yeah. a fellow dancer had managed to find a new career in town and talk to you about it. What job had he landed? Um, so he became a police officer. So, and, you know, Seth was a good friend of mine. He still is a good friend of mine. And, you know, I got to see his transition into becoming a police officer and the things that it provided for his family and the impact that he was having on the community as an officer. And it, it started to kind of pique my interest. This is Seth Del Grosso, and you mentioned that you grew up in Baltimore. I'm curious what your experience with police was there as you contemplated becoming a cop. Um, I never, honestly, I mean, my, I have some law enforcement in my family, but um, personally, I, you know, I didn't think that I would become a police officer. Um, I've had a few experiences with law enforcement that, we're not the greatest. And so when I moved here 10 years ago, 10, 11 years ago, my mindset about police 
was that, you know, they're, you know, to be cautious and to, you know, they're not necessarily your friends and um, to just be weary. Um, that's just a product of growing up in Baltimore and seeing people get arrested for things that they may not have done. And also the, the enforcement that the police use in places like Baltimore. Um, but moving here and, you know, it took me about three to four years to get used to the police here and to understand that they are here. They're, they're a community, they're part of our community and that they're here to help the community. And, you know, once I got over that and had that realization, I started to see all the good that they were doing and seeing how truly they are a part of the community and seeing my neighbors thank them for their service and thank them for um, helping them when they had situations where they needed help, you know? So yeah, it, it evolved from not trusting the police to eventually now I'm a part of the police department here. Yeah, you, you told me when we first chatted on the phone uh, that you were surprised at how nice police officers were in Aspen. And, and you thought, what what are their motives? Why are they yeah. talking to me? I mean, I was like, why are they so nice to me? Why are they saying hi? You know, like... Yeah. You know, most of the time in Baltimore, the only time you really interact with police is because they're stopping you for a reason and they are investigation. There's some type of investigation. And I'm not saying that they're all like that, but from some of my experiences, that's what my interactions with them were. And um, moving out here, you know, they would come in and say hi and keep keep moving. And it honestly threw me off a little bit. I was like... I was like, wait a minute, what just happened? He just said hi to me and, you know, how's my day going and asked me a personal question. And, you know, so it, it definitely it definitely took me some getting used to. Mm-hmm. Just like people don't lock their doors here is another thing I have to get, you know, I still don't get used to that, people not locking their doors and stuff here. So, How much do you think your interactions with police early on had to do with your identity, maybe your racial identity? Um, I mean, it's, it's definitely a part of it. It's definitely a part of it. I, I mean, as an artist, you try, you try to not let that affect you, but it's unrealistic to say that it doesn't. So it definitely, it it definitely has an effect knowing that the color of my skin can make me guilty before you've investigated. In some instances can make me guilty before you even investigate it. But we don't, again, we don't have that problem here. We don't, we don't police that way here. So that's why I love it here. And you identify as African-American. I do. Yeah. Uh, Aspen Santa Fe Ballet, I want to just say, dissolved its dance company, citing the economic hardships of the pandemic, but it'll continue on as a nonprofit that collaborates with other nonprofits. It'll still have a mission of outreach and education. Um, the company is based at the Aspen campus of Colorado Mountain College, and CMC is actually where you did your law enforcement training. And I, I guess it's against the backdrop of that training that I'd like to ask how you interpret, as an officer and as an officer of color, all of the instances we have seen of people of color lately, and historically, of course, um, being killed by police. I mean, certainly we have the George Floyd murder and that that trial and that verdict, but we know that even during that trial and after, there have been more instances of black people dying at the hands of cops. What what goes through your mind when these incidents make the news? Um, 
first it's it's very it's 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 sad you know um i can tell you from my experience as a new officer that you you're just not trained to do a lot of the stuff that they're doing you know um you're not trained you're not trained to put your knee on someone's neck you're tr you know they're that's just not that's not how you're trained to do things and um i hope as an officer well part of the reason why I became an officer is that you hope that I'm of the mindset that you lead by example, you show people based on your actions, the things that you want to see and have done. So um, I'm just hoping that my actions and me being a, being an officer in the community can show people that not all police are like that. And that's not how we're trained to handle and to deal with things. Um, so that's my goal and my hope as an, as a new officer and, I, again, I'll, t I'll tell your listeners, like, that's just not how we're trained. You're not trained to do that. You're not trained to put your knee on someone's neck. You're not trained to, you know, necessarily choke somebody out, you know, so. Officer, before we go, do you still dance? Like, even if it's at home, maybe with your family? Oh, yeah, I got a little one. So we, we're always dancing. And actually, I just took my first ballet class in over a year about uh, last week. So that, w that felt good to kind of reminisce about the good old days. <laughs> good old days. Well, I'm so grateful you shared your story with us. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. That is Officer Joseph A. Watson II. He's on the Aspen Police Force. He formerly danced with Aspen Santa Fe Ballet. Still to come, our arts reporter, Monica Castillo, watched the Oscars last night through something of a Colorado lens, and she'll share what stood out. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. While journalism is retreating in many places across the country, CPR is putting more resources to work for you. Communities all over Colorado are in need of critical information, and your support ensures that trustworthy news remains freely available to Coloradans everywhere. As demand grows for CPR services, so does the need for additional resources. Your membership helps fund the important work ahead. A reliable way to give is monthly as an Evergreen member. Get started at CPR.org. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Transgender advocates say the rights of trans kids are under attack. According to the Human Rights Campaign, there have been more than 100 anti-trans bills in state legislatures across the country this year. Many would exclude transgender youth from sports in the gender they identify with. In Colorado, that right is already enshrined in law, but some families of trans kids say they still feel vulnerable in the current political climate and given their new congresswoman. CPR's Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg has the story. When Republican Congresswoman Lauren Boebert stepped onto the stage at a packed Montrose saloon last month, she electrified the crowd. God bless each and every one of you. It was her first rally since taking office in January, and she hit all those popular points she ran on. Guns, God, and Trump. But she added something that was not part of her platform until recently. Transgender kids. Though she never used those words. How many girls will lose out on their scholarship because they're outplayed by a boy? Boebert was talking about the Equality Act. If passed by the U.S. Senate, it would keep someone from being fired or denied housing just because they're gay or transgender. 
It would also allow young trans athletes to compete with the gender they identify with, as opposed to the one assigned to them at birth. And it's that last part that's become a rallying cry for some Republicans, including Boebert. Here she is in late February. Will Joe Biden tell the parents of the girl who gets her skull crushed how fair that is? And will Nancy Pelosi please explain to our daughters why boys pretending to be girls are leering at them in the girls' locker room? I played some of her comments for Tyler White, a 17-year-old athlete who lives in Grand Junction in Bobert's sprawling district. I'm not sure that she knows a lot of what she's saying. He runs boys' track and is trying out for lacrosse. He's also transgender. I don't know how much research she's done, and I would just, yeah, I would just like to, like, I could show her my humanity and be like, we're just, we're just humans. Tyler figured out he was trans at 11 or 12, but didn't tell his parents for a few years. He planned to run away from home if they didn't support him. But they did. Just calling him Tyler, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, his face lit up. Tyler's mother, Heather White, says her son stopped being that depressed kid who spent all day in his room. And then, of course, once we started the testosterone, things really, really got better, you know? Yeah. yeah. That was at 14, after many consultations with doctors. Bobert has spoken out against that kind of hormone therapy for young people. Tyler's mom has a question for her. Why are you, you know, attacking the trans community like you're doing? Bobert did not respond to several requests for comment for the story. But former Olympian Eli Bremer, who used to chair the Republican Party in El Paso County, agrees with Bobert that the Equality Act could dismantle girls' sports. He says many parents have told him they're scared their cisgender daughters will be forced to compete against trans girls. And that's not all. You know, what's going to happen if, if an individual says, gee, I can't, I can't make it as a man and the protections aren't there. So they say, I'll identify as a woman and get a scholarship and get into a college that way. And my daughter doesn't get into college because of that. There's no evidence that has happened. But Bremer says it could. And he believes the Equality Act sets the stage for it. I think it's utterly naive to think that if there are loopholes built in, if people perceive loopholes and perceive some sort of advantage, that at some point you won't have people that want to take advantage of that. I can't think of another time of a time when you haven't had that happen. But Mara Kiesling asks this. What would happen to that guy if he did that? Kiesling, a trans woman and executive director of the National Center for Transgender Equality, says technically, yes, a man could lie and completely change his gender identity to try to win a competition. But what would he have accomplished? He may have the gold medal, but it would be such a disgrace, it wouldn't matter. <laughs> it, he, nobody would do that. And Kiesling wants to know one other thing. If trans athletes are such a threat, why aren't they dominating now? Show me all of the athletes winning the Olympics. Show me all the athletes who have taken over the WNBA. It isn't happening. A cisgender female Olympian told me transgender athletes not excelling is just not a good argument for inclusion. She says she's an ally to the LGBTQ community, but is concerned about competing with trans women 
something the Olympics already allows at certain testosterone levels. And she says that controversy could hurt the fight for clean sports. Christina, a mom to a trans child, thinks that worry over trans people in the Olympics is overblown. We're not using her last name or town to protect her young son's identity. It's such a small percentage of the population that's transgender. And then it's also probably a smaller percentage of the transgender population that want to play sports, that want to play sports seriously, and that will remain in sports. Plus, she says sports, especially school sports, are supposed to be fun. And denying anybody the right to participate in a school sport is just wrong. But Christina doesn't think the fight against the Equality Act is even about sports. She says that when Bobert brings up the idea of boys leering at girls in locker rooms or bathrooms, she's stoking fear about trans people. I think that's intentional. She's doing that to harm the transgender community. And if, if she doesn't think she is, she's dead wrong. Christina says during the Trump administration, she saw more cruelty and hostility directed at her family. And then again, as Boebert and other Republicans focused on trans issues. I just would like for her to understand that her words matter and it will negatively impact my innocent child. I know if people met us and met my child, like they would see that there's nothing to be afraid of and that these people are valid. And as all the parents I talked to were quick to say, trans children are all over Bobert's district. In Grand Junction, I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. Hollywood celebrated its biggest night of the year Sunday with the 93rd annual Academy Awards. And while Denver-born director Lee Isaac Chung's movie Minati didn't take home the biggest awards, it did garner Best Supporting Actress and one of the evening's most memorable speeches. CPR arts and culture reporter Monica Castillo was watching. Hi, Monica. Hi, Ryan. Did you enjoy yourself? Oh, first yes. Up? You did. Okay. <laughs> uh, Yoo Jung-yoon, who plays the grandmother in Minati, the story of a Korean-American family that buys a farm in Arkansas, uh, gave just a, a lovely acceptance speech for Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Yoon jokingly thanked her sons for making her get a job. Yes, she's been acting since the 1970s. During her speech, she even thanked Ki Young Kim, the director who gave her first role. She quit the business for a time, but came back to acting because it was a way for her to support her two sons after her divorce. Mm. And she gave them an unforgettable a shout out in her Oscar speech. She also said she became very close to the cast and crew of Minati. We became a family. And most of all, above all, Lee Isaac Chung, without him, I couldn't be here tonight. He was our captain and my director. So thanks to you. Tremendous thanks to you. And I'd like to thank to I don't believe in competition. How, how can I win Glenn Close? Win over Glenn Close. I've been watching her so many performances. So this is just uh, all the nominees, five nominees. Uh, we are the winner for the different movie, different role. We play the different role. So we cannot compete each other. 
tonight I'm here is just, I have just a little bit luck, I think. Maybe I'm luckier than you. <laughs> <laughs> and also maybe it's a American hospitality for the Korean actor. I'm not sure. But anyway, thank you so much. And uh, I'd like to thank to my two boys uh, who made me go out and work. So, <laughs> beloved son, all and all, this is the result because mommy worked so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so she mentioned Lee Isaac Chung, the director who was indeed born in Colorado, then moved to Arkansas, where his family farmed. He still has a lot of family, by the way, in Colorado Springs, who no doubt were watching when I got. Uh, the Academy Awards took on a just a different feel because of the pandemic, staged, socially distanced in two different locations. But, you know, one thing didn't change. The Oscars were used as a platform for commentary on social issues in the United States. What stood out to you? Well, actress and director Regina King opened the show on a passionate note by talking about the outcome of the George Floyd murder trial. Ah, it has been quite a year, and we are still smack dab in the middle of it. We are mourning the loss of so many, and I have to be honest, if things had gone differently this past week in Minneapolis, I might have traded in my heels for marching boots. Now... I know that a lot of you people at home want to reach for your remote when you feel like Hollywood is preaching to you. But as a mother of a black son, I know the fear that so many live with and no amount of fame or fortune changes that. Later, when Trevon Free and his co-director won for Best Live Action Short, Free also called attention to the still ongoing issue of police brutality. Today the police will kill three people and tomorrow the police will kill three people and the day after that the police will kill three people because on average the police in america every day kill three people which amounts to about a thousand people a year and those people happen to disproportionately black people and you know james baldwin once said the most despicable thing a person can be is indifferent to other people's pain And so I just ask that you please not be indifferent. Please don't be indifferent to our pain. When Tyler Perry received a humanitarian award, he said it was his hope that all of us would teach our kids to refuse hate. He said he refuses to hate someone because they are Mexican or because they are black or white or LGBTQ or because they are a police officer or because they're Asian. What was the biggest um, surprise of the night for you, Josiah? Well, there are always a few upsets. Personally, I'm very disappointed that the documentary Oscar went to the film about a man obsessed with an octopus instead of the movie like Time or Collective, both of which shine a light on government's abuse of power and the people challenging that oppression. But I think the literal show-stopping moment was the very end. This year, the Oscars announced their Best Picture winner, Nomadland, ahead of the awards for Best Actress and Best Actor. The going theory is that the producers thought it would be an emotional note to end on if the Best Actor award went to Chadwick Boseman. It didn't go to Boseman. It went to Anthony Hopkins, and he wasn't even there. So instead of an emotional send-off, we got the credits. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a wrap on this year's Strange Oscars. You know, since a lot of people would normally throw Oscar parties but couldn't, 
this year. How did you see fans celebrating the biggest night for Hollywood? I was lucky that I found a lot of friends and strangers who were live tweeting the show, sharing clips of speeches, memes, photos, and so much more. Usually I would be at a friend's Oscar party as well as on Twitter. So I'm glad that the social aspect of watching the ceremony as it happens live felt active as ever. I also heard from friends in group chats and text messages. It might have been a strange year for going to the movies. But some things never change. Some things never change. I look forward to sitting in a movie theater again, Monica. I can't. I might cry when that happens. I will, too. Uh Uh-huh. Okay. (laughs) Maybe we should go together. We should. (laughs) Okay. We'll bring tissues. That is CPR's arts and culture reporter, Monica Castillo. And we're going to leave with music from the Disney Pixar hit Soul, which won the Academy Award for Best Animated Feature and Best Original Score. The movie features the musical talents of saxophonist Tia Fuller, who grew up in Colorado. Denver's Tia Fuller, on whom the animation for saxophonist Dorothea Williams is based in the Oscar-winning movie Soul. And now time for our credits to roll. Carl Bielek. Ali Butner. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner with very special thanks to Haley Sanchez. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.